Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to pick up where we left off last week. We've been talking for the last few weeks about examining the foundation of our lives. Hebrews 13 says that there's going to come a day when everything can be shaken on the earth and in the heavens that can be shaken will be shaken. And that, that God's going to cause that shaking because it's going to separate out that which is of the kingdom of God from that which is in our lives which is not of the kingdom of God. And I don't believe we're at that point yet but I believe that there are things that go on in our lives that can cause a shaking in our lives. Things that just don't go the way you'd like them to go, that, that aren't just, you, you, some of our lives right now, they may just, you know, I'm just floating on water nice and smooth and everything going downstream and the breeze is blowing and everything's just wonderful. But some of you may feel like you're in a hurricane right now and, and, uh, and everything's getting shaken. And those are opportunities for us to look and examine in our lives. If something can be shaken, then it's not, built, it's not something God's built into my life because God's not shaken. The Word of God's not shaken. The kingdom of God's not shaken. So if something in your life is causing you to be shaky, it's not something God's built into your life. It's something you built into your life or built your life on, which is not of the kingdom of God. And now's the time for us to examine these things, not when the shaking that God's talking about in Hebrews 13 occurs. And so that's what we've been looking at. And we've looked back, we started in Matthew 7, and we're, uh, where Jesus talks about what the right foundation is. And we're going to uh, talk a little bit more today about that foundation. And Jesus says... The key to the foundation is this. He said, there are two men. They each built a house, and they each went through a storm. In one case, the house fell, and great was its fall. In the other case, the house stood. And the reason was because the house that stood was built on a foundation that was solid. It was a rock. And then he goes on to say, that's the man that hears the word of God and does the word of God. It's interesting, if you study in Hebrew the word hearing, there is no such word, there is no such word as obedience, excuse me, in, he, in Hebrew. The word for obedience is hear. So the Hebrew concept is that the only kind of hearing that's really hearing is when I hear and then go do it. And the verse that keeps coming to me and was coming to me this morning is Jesus says to the churches in, in the book of Revelation, he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to this church and to that church. And I believe the Spirit of God is saying something to the church in general, but I believe with all my heart he's saying something to Faith Christian Center. And we need to have ears to hear what he's saying to us because God loves us. God wants to protect us and God wants to prepare us and strengthen us. But most of all, God wants us closer to him than we are right now. And he knows how to get us there. And we sometimes think we're so smart and know so much, but he knows infinitely more than you and I do. So we just need to trust him and allow him to do this. So when he's causing us to examine our foundation, it's because he wants to strengthen us so that in whatever's coming, we may be strong, but not just through that, but we may be strong and not easily shaken in our walk with him. And I shared with you this story about my grandfather building a house in southern Jersey right on the coast, right on the beach, and, and that where it's all sand, the, 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 all the soil is sand. And he sunk, the foundation was based on, on telephone poles that were driven down into the bedrock, whereas all of his neighbors just put their, their house on the sand. And, and when I was a young boy, I woke up in November one morning and there was a hurricane and our house was surrounded by the ocean. And the houses around us went, but my grandfather's house stood. Why? So I have a living example 
very real in my memory of the story that Jesus told. We spent the last several weeks looking at things that we can build our lives on that are not sure foundations. We've looked at building our life on, on our senses, judging things and trusting things based on our senses. It's one of the ways of being a carnal Christian, which is, means basically acting just like the world. The world does not know how anything to do other than judge things based on their senses, what their eyes tell them, what their ears tell them, what their senses tell them. But the Word of God says the kingdom of God is just the opposite. In the, king, in, in the world, seeing is believing. But in the kingdom of God, believing, you believe first, then you see. Everything in the kingdom of God operates by faith, which is trusting something that God, because God says it, not because I see it. And so we saw that that was not a solid foundation. That's why so many Christians are up one day and down the next. It all depends on what... So when everything's going well, this, though God's great, God's on His throne, Jesus is wonderful, I come to church and raise my hand and worship God, but then when I've had a rough day and things aren't going well, a lot of people just stay home from church. You know, that's the worst thing to do. Because I can't tell you the times I've felt I've really needed encouragement or strength and I walk in here and you encourage me just by your presence. I just walk in the door here and there's an energy in here that just strengthens and lifts up. This is why, this is why it goes on in Hebrews in chapter 10. It says, as you get near to the end, don't forsake your for assembling together. All the more as you see that day of coming. Why? We need each other. And I know we've got social media. We're on television this morning. And I know, you know, there's all kinds of streaming and podcasts and other kinds of casts and all this stuff out there. That's wonderful. But it's the assembling together we draw strength from one another. Those are auxiliaries. Those are really there to take the gospel out into the world. They're not there so that the church... I love it because sometimes I'll go into, into the children, into the... Um, lunchroom for our, our, our elementary school and I'll have it hasn't happened yet this year but I'll have some sweet maybe one of your children look up at me and says oh I saw you on television on Sunday what they don't realize they're telling me is that their family stayed home <laughs> don't tell Pastor John we saw him on TV <laughs> Pastor Sam used to call it bedside assembly. <laughs> but we're missing something. We're missing the power of the Spirit. I don't care how, how high definition your TV is. I don't care whether it's 3D, 4D, 6D, whatever it is. It's still not the same as being present. I know I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you're here. But the importance of this, the importance of the Word of God in our lives... Jesus said, he who builds, he who hears, the, hears what I say and does it is someone that builds his life on a solid foundation. He who just hears it. That, now he's talking to believers. He's talking to people that come to church, talking to people that tune it in on Channel 12 and tune it in on their podcast. He's talking to people that watch the Word and hear the Word, but they don't do it. So he's not talking about people saying, oh, I don't believe in that God stuff. I don't believe God's real. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people that profess to believe in God. That He's talking about people with bumper stickers on their car, carrying Bibles around, you know, I love Jesus you know, pins in their lapel and all that stuff, all the Christian paraphernalia, but they don't do it. Says you're building your house. See, the people that don't believe in God, they're not building a house. But he's talking about people that are trying to build a house that that's a house for God, but it's on a sol it's not on a solid foundation. 
And so we've looked at the senses as one way. We've looked at traditions of man. And that's when we take our own ideas of what God ought to be like and what God, the way God does things. Our own ideas about things, and we add them to what the Word says. And we all do that to some degree. We were trained to do that. Many of us have come out, all of us have come out of churches that have some kind of tradition. If you don't tell anybody else, I'll tell you a secret. This church has traditions. Because we're human beings. We tend to do things by habit. And the proof of that is that I can tell ahead of time where most of you are going to sit. Because you sit in your assigned seat. And that's okay. It's just if somebody... Now, some of you are moving around. <laughs> it's just if somebody else sits in your seat and you get your nose out of joint, now it's not a... Tr now it's not... Now it's not a habit. Now it becomes something more than that. And now we... That's why often, you know, maybe you do need to move around and sit in somebody else's seat so that they can have a chance to walk in love towards you. Amen. But what Jesus said about traditions is when we take the Word of God and we add our own ideas or our own interpretation to it, He says you make the Word of God of no effect. Not that you water it down or hinder it. You make it of no effect. And what we saw was the reason why it becomes of no effect is it's no longer God's Word. It's my Word and God's Word together. So the traditions of men. And then we've, over the last two weeks, we've looked in 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 where we, Paul talks about two ditches. And ditches are the sides of the road that, where you get off the road and you get in the mud or you get stuck and you can, it doesn't matter which side you go, you go in, you're not on the road anymore. And he talked about the Jews trust in signs. They have to see miracles. They have to see some outward demonstrative sign before they're going to trust in God. And the Greeks rely on wisdom, which is ideas and concepts and understanding. And you say, well, that doesn't bother me because I'm not a Greek. Yes, but we, most of us filter the Word of God through our own understanding. If I can understand it, then I'll accept it. If I can understand it, so, you know, and, and we, so, so much of what we do is trying to appeal to the mind, but right in there, buried in there, in the verse before, I think it's verse 22, Paul says, but it's the foolishness of believing the Word preached by which we're saved. So God's method of saving souls is through the simplicity to the world that doesn't make sense. It's just too simple. You mean just believing that does it? Yeah, that's what, because that's what God says. Well, it's got to be more complicated than that. It's full of, through, the full, through the foolishness of believing the preached word. So believing is the method God's chosen by which we receive the kingdom of God. It goes on in chapter 2 saying, once you believe, there is a wisdom that God brings to us. There is a wisdom that God will reveal to us, but you don't get into the kingdom of God through wisdom and understanding. You get in by simply taking God at His word and believing His word that Jesus went to that cross to pay for your sins. It's that simple. But for so many of us, it's too complicated. We've got to make it, we've got to understand it, we've got to analyze it. So those are the two ditches. Now we're going to begin to look at what is the right foundation? What is the true foundation? Well, I understand, you know, it's, it's hearing the word and doing it, but we're going to take that to another level where that has more of an impact, a practical impact in our lives. So I want to give you plenty of time to find out where Genesis 3 is. All right, we kind of ended here last week. And of course, chapters 1 and 2 
of the story of the creation, not only of this, of this universe, but also the creation of man, God's crowning creation. And he created man in his image. Then he said it was not good for that man to be alone, caused a sleep to come upon him, and separated out half of who he was, and half of that into another being, another body, and, called, and Adam called that woman. And so you now have this man and woman, and God gave a commandment. The only thing he told, it's interesting, I was watching an old Billy Graham crusade last night, back from 1963. And, and uh, it's amazing how the hairstyles were different back then. <laughs> Some of you weren't back then. Some of you were. And, and, uh, but he was preaching out of the same verse, the same message, that God created it perfect for his man to enjoy. He says, go oh, enjoy it, I've made this for you. This is the only one thing you can't do. There's a tree in the middle. There's two of them, but there's one of them you can't eat of that tree. And that tree is the knowledge of good and evil. See, religion says in order to be right before God, you've got to keep all these rules, and most of them are don't. You can't do this, and you can't do that, and you must not do this, and you must not do that. Very few do's. But when God created this, he says, you can do what you want. Why? Because they were in right relationship with him. They were in fellowship with him. They were joined to him. He'd been created him, them out of himself. He says, so I trust you. Go do what you want to do. There's only one thing you can't do. You can't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And I'm sure there were more than these, but I know of two reasons I can think of why he said that. One was to remind them that they don't own it. They're still subject to someone. When there's something in your life you can't just do what you want to do with, when you realize by that it's in my hands, but I've got to, you know, I'm a steward over this, it reminds you that you are not the owner of your life, you're the steward of it. And I've taught this before. I personally believe that's one of the purposes of the tithe in the church today, to remind us that everything we have is we're stewards of because the tithe belongs to God. But that's not my message this morning. The knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The other reason I believe God chose that tree that they couldn't eat of because God knew, knew this man and woman that he designed. He knew what their limitations were. And have you discovered that we have limitations? And even back then, without, with all the creativity and without sin, there were still limitations. And God, I believe what God was saying is, I've not designed you to handle the knowledge of good and evil. Because all you've got to do is obey me. I understand the difference between good and evil. You just do what I say. I'll handle whether something's good or evil. You just do what I say, and you're taken care of. That's so simple. But what happened was Satan comes in, and of course that's what chapter 3 is about. Satan comes in, and the serpent, verse 1, was more cunning than any of the beasts that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of the tree of the garden? Now, this, this is exactly what he, Billy Graham in this message pointed out too. The very first thing Satan comes and does is to challenge the Word of God. And we're looking at this this morning because the Bible tells us that there is no temptation, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. There is no temptation that comes into anyone's life that's not common to man. And we're going to see this morning that the root of all sin, the root of all the wrong foundations, is back in Genesis chapter 3, and it starts by challenging the Word of God in their life. Challenging the Word... Can you trust God's word? And what he's coming to her. Notice he's crafty. He's cunning. He's not straightforward the way God is. 
And we've talked about what crafty and cunning means. Crafty and cunning means what it looks like thereafter is not what they're after. And we've used the example of a pickpocket. The pickpocket does not come up to you and say, uh, Ron, would you stand up a second because I'd like your wallet. Con artist on the phone doesn't say, look, madam, I'm trying to steal your, your savings account. So would you please give me your social security number and your bank account number and your PIN number because I want to steal your, your life savings. No, that's what they want, but they come and try to con you into giving them the information that they need by telling you they're really after something else. So Satan comes in telling them, basically, I'm here to help you because God's keeping something from you. And the way he gets them open to that was by starts by challenging God's word. Can you really trust what he meant? Can, does, did he mean what he said? And he does that with you and me today. He wants to get us to just doubt God's word, just to open that door a little bit to say, you know, I don't know if I can really trust that. You know what? After all, you know, I've been believing for this, and I know other people believing for this, and they haven't gotten it, or they, you know, this happened to them. Their experiences, are, you know, or my experiences don't line up with God's word. I don't know if I can really trust that. That's Satan working to undermine the foundation of your life. He cannot handle it if your foundation is built on the word of God because then he has no access. He can't bring any storm along that's going to destroy you. And so he doesn't care what house you build as long as you don't build it on God's word, on trusting in God. He loves to have you, he loves to have churches built on, on wonderful churches built, but not on the right foundation. He loves to have our lives built on. We get, oh, what, what a wonderful life this person has. What a wonderful life. Oh, I'm doing so many great things for God. I'm doing all these things. And knowing that my foundation is not solid because just at the point I think I'm really doing so well, all of a sudden, whap, something comes and I, my, my feet are where my head used to be. He loves doing that. So this is why it comes, first of all, to challenge the Word of God. Has God really said that? By the way, you know, in, in, in Luke chapter 3, he comes to Jesus and does the same thing. He tries to get Jesus to doubt the word. And the Bible tells us Jesus is the word of God. But he's, he, he has no lack of, of boldness. <laughs> he came to Jesus to challenge the word. And he came to this woman in the garden. Has God said And, of course, we looked last week that the moment she opens to consider, the moment she starts questioning it, the woman starts defending God and says, uh, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat nor touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, Now, he's, now that she's entertaining, listen to what she's doing. She's entering into a dialogue or a discussion with Satan about God's word and, the, and God's heart and God's intentions. And the more you entertain a debate with him, the more he'll talk to you. Oh, you may not hear Satan's voice. He'll use people. He'll use Christian television. In fact, he'll use sometimes the people that are closest to you because you're going to trust them more. He'll use thoughts at your mind. Well, I don't know whether I can trust, trust God in this situation. I don't, well, if we can't trust God, <laughs> who made the heavens and the earth, 
If we can't trust God, your life and it sustains you every moment, then who can we trust? Well, this is the answer because this is what he's after. So she tries to defend God and in the process, she's in a debate or a discussion or a dialogue with Satan about God. And this is what happens when you get into a discussion with Satan. Verse 4, And the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. In other words, God lied to you. Didn't start out by saying God lied to you. He just started out with a little subtle question. Can you really trust what God said? Can, Can you really trust it? And the moment she entertained that thought, she ends up at a point where she's listening. She's now doubting. She's basically believing God lied to her. You shall surely not die. Now, obviously what he's after here is to get her and then her husband to disobey God's commandment. But the process by which she gets them there is the process of getting her to begin to analyze and think about what God told them not to do. Have you ever noticed that when you sense that God's telling you to do something, that if you don't do it right away and you start thinking about it, that you most likely won't end up doing it because you'll talk yourself out of it? Because what you've done is you've gone from something God's shown you in your spirit to trying to handle it with your own understanding and, and, and the deception is, well, I now have to we'll figure out how to do this and when to do it. Well, if that were important, God would tell you how to do it and when to do it. He just says, do it. In this case, he said, don't eat of that. And so what's happening here, what he's really after underneath all of this, because through chapter 1 and chapter 2, I mean, this is called Eden, called a place of delight. This is the, as, as good as it'll ever get. This is heaven on earth. God fellowshipping, communion, providing everything. I mean, God, they were given an assignment to, be, to, to subdue the earth, to, to, to cultivate it, cause it to grow and prosper. And yet all of the creation worked together with it. It didn't rain. It didn't have to rain because the dew came up and settled in the morning on it. They didn't have to get rid of the weeds. There were no weeds. All of creation worked to carry out their commission and their purpose. And the moment they do what we're about to talk about, all of that reverses and a curse comes on the earth. And I don't believe it's because God got mad and just cursed the earth. What they did is they took it out from underneath God's kingdom and they established a kingdom of their own. And this is what Satan is after here. Because after all, we're not going to take the time to look there, but if you go back into, into the Old Testament where the few little glimpses we have of the origin of Satan, who was Lucifer, you'll find several major things. But basically, he says, I will make myself like the Most High. There's evidence to believe, I'm not teaching this as doctrine, but there's evidence to believe that he was one of the archangels and was most likely in charge of praise and worship. And it says he got lifted up by looking at his own beauty. 
got lifted up by looking at his own beauty and began to think, wait a minute, I'm entitled to something here. Forgetting that everything he had came from God and was a reflection of God. And he began to be filled with pride. I'm going to ascend into the place of the most high. And I personally believe if you read that, what he's not talking about is taking God's place. He was talking about taking the place of the Son of God, which is why he hates Jesus, because he's the rightful heir of what Satan, when he was Lucifer, thought he was entitled to. So there's a war in heaven which doesn't take very long. It's as fast as lightning, Jesus talks about. And Lucifer is cast down to this earth and becomes Satan. But he doesn't change what he's doing. Now what he does is he wants to take God's creation here and pervert it with the same thing he was trying to do. To sell that man and that woman on the same, the same sin that he committed, which was to try to establish their own kingdom. And this is what he's really after in Genesis 3. The issue is not eating the fruit or not eating the fruit. That's the means. What he's trying to say is, I am going to now, I w- they were created in God's image. They were created in union with him and oneness with him. And he's trying to convince them to walk away from God and to establish their own kingdom by making their own judgments and their own determination of what's right and wrong. And the way he's doing this by saying, God was trying to keep something from you. God knows that in, if you eat of this tree, that you're going to be like him. So God's withholding something from you. That, listen carefully. God's withholding something from you that you're entitled to. Don't you feel that you're entitled to it? Don't you just have the desire to eat that and the desire to touch it and to eat it? And that's what happened. She looked at it and says, Oh, this looks good to eat. She trusted in her senses, not what God said. By relying on her senses and her own understanding, those foundations we've learned are the wrong foundation. By relying on those foundations, she comes to the place of believing God's cheating her out of something that she's entitled to. Now listen, if she's entitled to something, then she's received something other than from God and he's keeping something from her. That's what Job felt. We looked at Job. Job says, what's unfair about this is all this disaster has come in my life and I want to, if this were anybody but God, I could haul them into court and they'd have to give an account. He wasn't saying, well, God doesn't entitled to give, doesn't have to give an account. He's saying what's fair is I can't make him give an account. And we saw how God delivered him from that. God speaks to him and just reminds Job who God really is. And so Satan's desire here, his device here, is to try to tempt them into establishing their own kingdom, which is themselves, where self, I, me, mine. If you look through those scriptures, I think it's in, uh, in Isaiah where, where, where it talks about Lucifer. In the course of about five verses, I, the first person pronoun, appears like seven or eight times. I will make myself... I will ascend. I will do this. I will do that. And the reason we've spent this time on it is to understand, because we're talking about foundations. The foundation and the root of all sin is in self. The sinful acts we commit are the fruit of that root. 
but the root of it goes back here, and this is where the fall took place, and this is what original sin is. It's self. And you can be a very good Christian, but you're doing it for yourself. So we feel good about ourselves, we look good, but the root's still wrong, the foundation's still me. And that's what we're going to begin to look at today, what the correct foundation is. So let's go over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. When we're the ones that decide for ourselves what's right and wrong, when we're the ones that decide for ourselves what's good and evil, then in reality we're our own God. First Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Now, Paul is writing to a church that was perhaps the most spiritually immature church of all the ones that Paul formed. Yet the gifts of the Spirit were flowing in abundance. There were wonderful spiritual things happened, miracles happening. And, but Paul, in the first chapter, calls them carnal. And now we're getting into one of the areas where they were carnal. There were fights in the church. I don't mean fist fights. I, they may have been. But there, was, there were divisions in the church where some said, well, I'm a follower of Paul. And others said, well, Paul, Apollos, who was a great teacher that come through. Well, we, we believe we're followers of, Paul's do, of Apollos' doctrine. And Paul is Paul if you part of, at the expre, at this at this attitude. He couldn't believe it. He says, "Is Christ divided?" So divisions are not of God. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But their ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one. I planted. In other words, I founded this church. Apollos watered. But God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants or he who waters is anything, but it's God who gives the increase. And he who plants and he who waters are one. Why are they one? They're working together for the same goal. So if you plant a garden in the spring, But somebody else comes along and they're watering it and somebody else comes along and weeding it. They're working together for the same purpose, which is to produce the fruit of that garden. So it's no big deal who planted, who watered, or who weeded the garden because none of you can cause it to grow. The growth comes because it's God's life in that seed. Well, in the same way in this church, Paul is saying, look, I'm just somebody God used to sow the Word of God into your lives. Apollos, a teacher, came along and he built on what I sowed and he gave you understanding and he gave you instruction and insight. And by that understanding and instruction, you could begin to grow. So he watered the seed. But he says, Don't, I'm not anything and Apollos is not anything. We're working together for the same goal perp, or purpose of the foundation of this church, which is that you might grow in God. God's the one that gave the increase. All right. Now, he who plants, verse 8, 
and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building according to the grace of God which was given to me. As a wise master builder, I laid the foundation. That's what we're talking about. And another builds on it. So he's talking about the foundation of a church, and this is where we're headed, because we're going to talk down the road about the foundation for this church. And I don't mean the slab that's underneath this carpet. It's the spiritual foundation of this church. And that's what the apostle is talking about here. According to the grace of God which was given to me as a wise master builder, I laid the foundation, and another builds on it, but let each take heed of how he builds on it. Verse 11. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, and wood or straw, the only foundation that's real and true for a church, the only foundation that's real and true for a Christian is Christ Jesus himself. So, well, I thought you were saying in Matthew 7 that it's hearing his word and obeying his word. Well, he and his word are one. It's not just taking that book out and reading it and doing what it says. It's a relationship with him. It's a relationship with him. Turn with me to Matthew 16. So it's not just, well, I can read my Bible, do what it says, and then I have a good foundation. Because the reality is you'll read your Bible and you'll do what it says sometimes, but sometimes you won't. You'll do what it says when it's convenient, when it's easy, when you're feeling good. But in those tough times when you don't feel like doing it, you don't think you can do it, you won't have the strength in you to do it. Because that comes out of the relationship. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said to him, Well, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then he said to them, and this is the question that's asked of all of us, Who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against. Now there's some people that will teach you that Peter is the rock. And I don't want but it's clear from the Greek that's not true. Because there are different genders of words, a different word for rock. And Petros and the word for rock are not exactly the same word. What Jesus is saying here is Peter... Who do you say I am? He says, you're Christ, the son of the living God. He says, you didn't figure that out on your own. It wasn't your reasoning. It wasn't the miracles. Flesh, my father revealed that to you. And Jesus is saying, it's on the revelation of who I am that I will build my church. The revelation that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, that's the foundation on which the church shall be built. And the question is, is the church being built in your life? Is that the foundation of your life? A revelation that Christ is the Son of God, the Messiah. Not just because I grew up in church intellectually understanding that. 
See, there are people that are in churches that are there by what we call mental assent. They read the scriptures, they read the doctrines, and they intellectually agree with it. So, yeah, I believe that. You know, that's true. That, that makes sense. That's true. I grew up that way. As I've shared with you before, in the last church we were in, I got saved, not in the church, but while we attended the church. I was a deacon in the church. And yet, I don't know of anybody in that church that was saved. And I wasn't. And yet I knew what the Word of God says. In fact, I think I've shared with you, I actually preached a sermon. I don't want, I, I'm glad they didn't record it. Because <laughs> I read it. There was no anointing there. I didn't have the Spirit of God inside of me. I read it. If I had to read sermons now, I'd, I don't know what I'd do. I wouldn't read them probably. Because you know me, I'd go off on tangents. But the point is this. I knew, I, I knew all that, but I had not received the revelation to me. For John, he is the Messiah. For John, he's the Savior. Until one night in my living room, the, the Jesus that was in that book I'd been reading, the Bible, came off the pages of that book and became real to me. And my life changed that time because now the foundation of my life began to be the revelation of who he is. And that's what Jesus is saying. My church, my church, the foundation is to be the revelation of Christ. Not just who he is, it's the revelation of Christ and of his will and of his purpose. All right, let's go now and begin to take a look at this Christ. Let's take a look at Jesus and let's take a look at the foundation of his life. Let's go to Luke chapter 2. Jesus is a little boy here. Luke chapter 2, verse 46. Now, so, what has happened is they've gone to Jerusalem for the high, high festival, the feast of Passover. And they're traveling in an entourage. They didn't just travel as, you know, Mary and Joseph and Jesus. They were all part of their family, their whole village uh, that made this pilgrimage. We'd be traveling back now home. And they discovered after three days that Jesus wasn't among them. And they couldn't find him. So we're going to pick up in verse 46. Now it was after these three days that they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. He's only 12 years old. Both listening to them, isn't that interesting, and asking them questions. This is Jesus listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, that's his parents, they were amazed. And the mother said to him, Son, why have you done this to us? Sounds like a mother, doesn't it? Look, your father and I sought you anxiously. And he said to them, Why did you seek me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And that's what the New King James says. Some of yours will say, I must be in my father's house. Let me explain that to you. Because literally in the Greek... What it says is, I must be about my, the things of my father, my father's things. What Jesus is saying here, he was already getting a revelation of the foundation of his life, 
the foundation we're talking about now, the purpose for your life. What is your life? Why are you here? Why didn't Jesus just save you and bring you home? Why has he left you here where we're exposed to the devil, to temptations, to evil? Why did he leave us here because we're exposed to sickness and disease and things like that and enemies and, and, and because the Bible says many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. Why would he expose people he loves to those things? Why would he leave us here in a world that's going crazy? Why would he do this if he loves us? The answer's in there's a purpose for our being here. And the question is, are we building our life and basing our life on that purpose or is that just some auxiliary thing that hangs out somewhere in the back of our mind and says, you know, I ought to do that someday? Or is that the f- purpose for which you live? So we're looking at Jesus' discovery of the purpose for which he was here. Now, under, I, may, I, may, I may, you know, Pastor Sam says, we may take some sacred cows and turn them into sacred hamburger. <laughs> We may tip over some sacred cows and disturb some things, but you've got to understand that Jesus had to grow in the knowledge of who he was. You do understand that he, he wasn't in, in, the, in the manger. He didn't have this halo around his head, you know. And when he's walking around as little Jesus, when he's three years old, he didn't have a halo around his head. The reason I know that is because when he comes back in the fullness of the Spirit and begins to minister, they have a problem accepting who he is now. Because their whole problem isn't this. this is, we know him. He grew up. This is Jesus. Mary and Joseph's boy. Good kid. Nice boy. Knew his, you know, knew his, 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 his Torah. He knew all that stuff. But he, there wasn't anything. He wasn't going around, you know, healing the sick and opening blind eyes when he was three, raising the dead when he was 10, or they would have had no problem recognizing who he was when he's 30. I'm not saying he sinned. I'm not saying that. He just d- didn't do anything. There was nothing that was so outstanding about him as the child of God that people said, wow, I, I, I know what this kid's future is. He's going to be most likely the Messiah when he grows up. He had to grow in the knowledge of who he was. And how did he do that? Through the scriptures. And how do we find out who we are? And how do we grow in the knowledge of who we are? Through the scriptures and the Spirit of God taking those scriptures and revealing to us who God is and who we've made us to be. But Jesus went through that process. So let's look at... Go to Hebrews. Chapter 10. Which quotes something which is actually Psalm 40, but it pulls it together. He's talking about the contrast between the system of sacrifices of bulls and goats under the law of Moses and the tabernacle pattern of worship and the true worship and the true sacrifice because that, that Christ was to be. So the whole contrast here, really throughout all of Hebrews, but through, especially through uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10, is a contrast between the Old Testament system of sacrifices, the Old Testament priesthood, which was temporary, 
But that was a forerunner. It was a foreteller. It was a preparation. It was a rehearsal for the real sacrifice, the permanent sacrifice that was to be Christ. So having gone through that contrast, chapter 10 starts out by talking about the power of the blood of bulls and goats couldn't do anything permanent. But now he's going to shift and talk about the real sacrifice that God was sending, which was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And so in that, the writer of Hebrews, we'll look here, we'll look here in verse 5. Because verse 4 says, It was impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you took no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book it is written to do your will, O God. That's a quote out of Psalm 40. So somewhere Jesus is learning Psalm 40 as a little boy, and when he reads these words, something goes off, and that's you. That's you. As he reads about the Messiah and the Lamb of God prophesied in Isaiah, some witness was in him, that's you. And gradually, I believe, a picture begins to form in him that he is that Lamb. And gradually, what this is saying is, the purpose for his life was revealed to him. The foundation of his life. He did all kinds of things. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He preached the gospel. He did all of those things, and those were were part of what he was called to do. But the foundation of all of that, the root of all of that, the reason he was here is he came to die. He came. God gave him a body. That's what this is saying. He's recognized. The blood of bulls and goats, sacrifices and offerings you didn't desire. You, you, you had to tolerate those because those were the best they could do at the time. But that's not what you wanted. That's not your will. That's not what satisfies the desire of your heart. Not the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but a body you have prepared for me. Jesus didn't see his body as just something he could do what he wanted to do with. He didn't just see his body. You know what? I think I'm going to get a redo. You know what? I think I'm going to get a facelift because I don't, you know, like the way I look here. You know, people may not think that much of me. You know, I need to do this. I need to do a little tucking here and a little, you know, and I'm not, if you've done that, don't, I'm not, you know. I'm just saying, Jesus, Jesus saw his body, Jesus saw his body as the vehicle that was going to be needed to accomplish why he was here. So he took care of it for that purpose. He fed it for that purpose, not to satisfy his appetites and desires, not so he could feel good. And we better not go there. (laughs) He saw his body as an instrument that was part of fulfilling his purpose for here. Everything he did, he ran through and based it on the ultimate purpose for which he was here because that purpose was the foundation of his life. But I'm going to suggest to you, and listen carefully, it wasn't just it was that he was here to die. The foundation of his life 
was to fulfill God's will for his life. And in his case, that meant going to the cross. The foundation of Jesus' life, the thing he stood on, the thing he trusted in, the only reason he did what he did underneath everything else was to fulfill the will of his Father. And we're going to look at that now. Let's go over to John chapter 4. We spent a year in this section of scriptures, but we didn't focus on this. We skipped over this. This is the story, of course, with Jesus with the woman at the well. And he's on his way through Samaria. They stop at this well because it's midday and they're thirsty and, the, and they don't have food, so the, the, his, his staff goes into town to get some grocery shopping to buy some sandwiches and bring back some Big Macs and fries and whatever they ate, you know. <laughs> Healthy, though. No trans fats. <clears throat> and, and while they're gone, what we spent so much time looking at over a year was Jesus' re- interaction with this woman at the well. <clears throat> and now he's finished talking with her, and the disciples come back with their Big Mac chocolate frake and sh- shaken fries. <clears throat> and he says to them, verse, um, we're going to pick up in verse 30. Then they went out of the city and came to him. They came back. In the meantime, his disciples urged him, saying, Rabbi, eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore the disciples said to one another, Who brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Now what does food represent? Food is what sustains you. Food is what gives you energy. Food in some is cases what motivates us. Food is also what we take our comfort in, right? Food is what we enjoy life. It's part of enjoyment of life. You know, you've gone through, if you ever go through a time when your nose is stuffed up and you, you can't eat anything. <laughs> now, and you have to eat because you have to, but you, you, can't, you can't taste anything, so there's no enjoyment. God gave us taste buds, so first of all, so that we can determine whether something's safe to eat or not but also to enjoy it. But we must use responsible sense in that. And what we'll do sometimes is, you know, we may feel discouraged and, you know, we go to the refrigerator, I've got to eat something so I feel better about myself. Then we're using that food to comfort us, to sustain us. We're using it. And, and I'm not saying that's what good to do, but Jesus is saying here, what sustains me, what energizes me, what enlivens me, what breathes life back into me, what gives comfort to me, what satisfies me is to do why I, what I'm here to do. And I believe, and we're going to get into this down the road, I believe that what causes so much dysfunction, so much frustration, so much depression, so much discouragement in people's lives is they're trying to make up for the fact that they're not doing what they were here to do. We were made. We were made. We were made by God, saved by God, put here by God to fulfill a purpose that's God's purpose. And if you try to live your life 
on anything else, somehow it will not satisfy, it will not fulfill. So we have to make up for that with artificial things like alcohol and drugs and sex and all kinds of things that are just going to get us more and more trouble, more and more onto the, into the other kingdom. And if we just do, like in the beginning, what he says to do. Jesus said, you don't understand. He says, you don't get it yet. I understand. He said, I have food. What sustains me right now isn't the food that you brought back from the city. What's sustaining me, what's got me going life, is that I'm doing the will of my Father. Wow. Let's go on and look. It's the foundation of Jesus' life. The reason why he did whatever he did was because he was here to do his Father's will. Let's go over to chapter 5. Verse 30. He's dealing with the Pharisees and they're giving him trouble and he's talking about honoring his father. He says in verse 30, I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, but my judgment is righteous because I don't seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. When your life is based on doing God's will, not your will, there's a protection. I believe that's the secret place of the Most High. There's a protection. You know, we love Psalm 91. We just forget the first part of it. He who dwells in the secret place of the Most High. Not him who recites the psalm. It's good to recite the psalm. Not him who, you know, God will, but the protection is he who does the will of our Father, whose life is based on that. That's why I'm here. And Jesus says, my judgment is right because I'm not exercising my own independent judgment. This is Jesus. Aren't we talking about the same thing was in the garden, the knowledge of good and evil? Jesus is saying, I don't exercise my own judgment of what's good and evil. That judgment's been given to me, but the reason I can exercise it rightly is because the only motive I have for exercising my judgment is to carry out my Father's will. So when my purpose is to carry out my Father's will, I'm going to have an understanding of what's right in His eyes and what's not right in His eyes. I'll show you that in another verse. We're going to discover that the reason many of you are having trouble hearing from God, the reason many of you are having trouble getting your prayers answered, the reason many things aren't working in your life spiritually is because we're on the wrong foundation. We're trying to have God do these things for us so that we can get what we want and have things work the way we want it. How is that different from in the garden when they started working the things of God for their own purposes instead of functioning under God's purpose? Let's go look at... Let's go look at chapter 6. Uh, it should be verse 30. Oh, I just did that. We just did that. Oops, never mind. Okay. Let's go to ch ver uh, chapter 7, verse 16. Jesus answered and said to them, My doctrine is not mine, but it's he who sent me. If anyone wills to do his will, that's my Father, he shall know concerning the doctrine whether it's from God or not, or whether I speak on my own authority. 
He who speaks from himself or with his own purposes or with his own motives or with his own goals seeks his own glory. And isn't that what we've been doing? Aren't we so concerned about what other people think of us, even in the spiritual things we do? I had to catch myself the other day, you know, thinking there's a, there's a, a situation arose and so I'm thinking, all right, what's the right thing to do here? And then I realized I caught, part of my motive is I wanted to make sure that the way I was handling it looked as if I really cared. I'm saying, whoa, that's for my glory. That's not God's glory. God's not in that. And the Spirit of God's just been opening me up to see how many things I do where underneath what I'm really looking for is how am I doing? What are other people going to think of me? That's for my glory. Good things, but somewhere underneath, my motive in part. Remember, it doesn't have to be all of it. Just in part, all it takes to, to begin to profane it is adding a little bit of my own glory in there, a little bit of what people are going to think of me. How does this reflect on me? Are people going to like me? Uh, do I, that mean I'm going to be a good pastor or not a good pastor? That's all me. That's this other stuff in the garden that they were going through, building their own kingdom. But notice what Jesus said is tied to this. Verse 16, 17. Oh, he who seeks from his, verse 18. He who speaks from his self speaks, seeks his own glory. And he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And there's, un, there's no unrighteousness in him. What he's saying here is your ability to discern truth. Your ability to discern true doctrine and tr the truth of the Word of God is only based on your motive for what you're going to do with it, your motive for living. If you're seeking your own glory, you're going to interpret it in terms of what feeds your own glory. But if you're here to, to do the will of God and the purpose of your life is to do the will of God, you're going to have revelation, you're going to have understanding of things because you're flowing in line with His purposes. I missed a verse which was over in, 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 in Matthew 6, but we all know it. The disciples came to him and asked him to teach him to pray. And Jesus said, don't be like the Gentiles, and we've been learning this on Wednesday nights, the wrong way to pray, but pray this way, in this manner. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. He's holy. We sang that earlier. And what's the next thing he says? Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth the same way it's done in heaven. In other words, the foundation for answered prayer is that the purpose of our life is to see His kingdom established, not mine. His will done, not mine. And so the foundation of Jesus' life and by that I mean the reason why he lived, the reason why he breathed, the reason why he ate, the reason why he did miracles, the reason why was to ultimately to do the will of his Father. And ultimately, his will for Jesus was to die on that cross in your place, in my place. Let's go, and we'll, we'll bring this part of it to the end. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 36, when Jesus came with them, uh, Judas has betrayed him, and now he's going into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. 
Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And then he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He was asking them to pray with him because of the agony he was going through. And he went on a little further in his face and prayed. What, what, what's the agony he's going through? Well, he makes it clear to us. Oh, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He didn't want to go to the cross. This is the part of us we know he's human. He wasn't some, you know, ivory god that walked around clothed in an artificial flesh. He was real. The idea of... He, see, you and I have never seen... I don't think I've ever seen a crucifixion. He'd seen them. And I don't believe it was even just the pain and agony of the physical beating and the, and, the, and the scourging and all of that. He also knew that for the first time in his existence, he'd be separated from the presence of God because the sin of the world was now going to be... You know what your sin felt like? Imagine the sin of the world coming on him. He was so repulsed at it. He was so in agony over this. He has to go into deep prayer and he's asking his disciples to watch him pray. And of course, they go to sleep. Like most of us have done at some point. Oh, Father, verse 39, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to his disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Couldn't you watch with me for an hour? Watch and pray lest you don't enter into temptation. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. A second time he went away to pray. said, My father, if this cup cannot pass it from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed a third time, saying the same words. Three times he had to go back and to establish because now he was facing the culmination, the fulfillment. He knew it was coming, but now he's facing it. And he does what we have to do. He went to the source of that will. Because you see, if you're commit to do God's will, then God is committed to sustain you, committed to give whatever it is that you need in order to do it. And the reason why so many of us struggle is we're trying, we'll get into this next week. We'll begin to, we've been looking at Jesus' foundation for his life. Now next week, we'll, or not next week, the week after, we'll begin to examine what is the foundation for my life and what does the Word of God have to say about that. And we'll find that the reason why many things aren't working is because we've been building a good house, a good life, good spiritual principles, good understanding, all of this, but the foundation has not necessarily been the foundation that God had ordained the foundation that works, the foundation that lasts. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now in the name of Jesus. And you're speaking to us by your Spirit some very important things and some serious things. As we prayed at the beginning, may we have ears to hear. Holy Spirit, I just release all of us, including me, into your hands that you may begin to work in our lives to show us and open our eyes to begin to see what is it that I have been basing my life on. What is it that's the most important things to me? What are the things that I really seek after and where is God's kingdom and where is God's will in that? 